Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. This is Giles Milton, host of the Unknown History Podcast, and you're listening to a special mini-series from historian Bradley Hart on Hitler's American Friends. In November 1938, one of America's most famous radio personalities took to the airwaves on a Sunday afternoon, as he had done for years. Unlike the talk shows of later years, this host would not be taking calls from his fans. On this occasion, the host opened his show with the usual church choir and organ music before launching into a startling defense of Nazi Germany's recent treatment of its Jewish population. Though the host claimed to oppose any form of religious discrimination, he proclaimed that the recent violence against German Jews was merely a response to the genuine threat posed by communism. He went on to name two dozen Jews he claimed had helped bring about the 1917 Russian Revolution, before concluding to his listeners that Jews had risen to, quote, high places in radio, press, and finance, and were now facing a backlash. In face of all this, I ask you calmly, what of Americanism and our democracy? Is there no one to defend them? This was the radio show of Father Charles Coughlin, one of America's most infamous radio personalities of all time. From 1926 until 1940, Coughlin hosted a Sunday radio program that often focused more on politics than matters of faith. He would eventually see himself as the voice of millions of disaffected Americans who had lost everything in the Depression and saw no improvement in sight. This populism gathered Coughlin what may have been the largest audience in American radio history, if not world history. While we don't have accurate information from the 1930s, public opinion polling suggests that Coughlin's monthly audience may have been as large as 29 million people, with about half that number listening on a weekly basis. This meant that his audience was much larger than any other talk show hosts either before or since. By 1938, Coughlin had convinced millions of Americans who'd heard him on the radio that he understood their problems as no one else could and was giving them a voice. The radio priest, as Father Coughlin became known, came from humble beginnings. Coughlin himself was actually Canadian and had been born in Ontario. He entered the seminary and was apparently an outstanding student. After entering the priesthood, he was appointed to run a small shrine called the Shrine of the Little Flower in the Detroit suburb of Royal Oak. The shrine still exists, incidentally. This was an area known for its Ku Klux Klan presence, and local members of the Klan welcomed the new priest by burning a cross on his front lawn. Coughlin came to believe that the best way to combat this kind of prejudice was by making his church popular, and a few months later he invited big-name baseball players, including the Catholic Babe Ruth, for a visit. As you can imagine, the event not only gained Coughlin positive press coverage, but raised his profile in the community. Using the new technology of radio to reach the masses fit well with Coughlin's overall plans. In October of 1926, he made his first regional broadcast at the age of 35 and was regarded as a hit. His voice registered well over the radio. He spoke slowly and deeply. Even today, 
listening to a recording of Coughlin's broadcast is somehow mesmerizing. From a purely performance standpoint, it's easy to see why Americans were entranced by his broadcasts. In these early years, most of Coughlin's shows focused on religious issues and the scriptures, but that all changed with the stock market crash of 1929. From 1930 onward, Coughlin's weekly broadcasts were decidedly political. The audience seemed to love it. Donations flooded into Coughlin's church. He was doing well. So much money was arriving that Coughlin actually had to hire a, a small army of clerks to process all of the incoming cash. In 1930, the radio priest went nationwide and signed a deal with the CBS radio network to take his show around the country and reach 40 million potential listeners. An obscure parish priest had managed to become a household name in just a few years. With this new national audience, though, Coughlin's broadcast began to go off the deep end. Whether this was because of his expanding ego or his changing political convictions isn't really clear, but in 1931, Coughlin began attacking the sitting president, Herbert Hoover, and endorsed Franklin Roosevelt on his radio broadcast. He told his audience explicitly, quote, it is Roosevelt or ruin. After FDR won the election, and we should remember that this was in the midst of the Great Depression, Coughlin assumed that his support would translate into access to the Oval Office and the president's ear. The radio priest began arguing that the president should begin minting huge amounts of money and back it with both gold and silver, in essence creating inflation. Coughlin thought that this would help struggling Americans pay off their debts and help create jobs, but the Treasury Department rejected it out of hand. Coughlin's influence with Roosevelt began to decline. The president simply wasn't interested in what the radio priest had to say. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Rather than simply fading into obscurity, however, Coughlin turned viciously against Roosevelt. In late 1934, he announced the foundation of the National Union for Social Justice, an interfaith political organization designed to bring social change while resisting communism and socialism. In essence, it was an alternative to both the Democratic and Republican platforms. Coughlin drafted a 16-point manifesto that called for the nationalization of public resources and the abolition of the Federal Reserve System. He also laid out a plan calling for the government to make massive investment in roads, dams, and reforestation efforts. In essence, this was a much larger version of Roosevelt's New Deal policies. Later that year, Father Coughlin shocked his listeners by telling them that he believed there was now little hope for the future of capitalism and democracy in the U.S. The only chance to avoid falling into communism or fascism, he told them, was through adopting his social justice platform. Coughlin was now espousing a political ideology of his own concoction, and it bore remarkable similarities to Nazism. 
After taking power in 1933, the Nazis had poured huge amounts of money into military spending and infrastructure projects, not dissimilar to what Coughlin was suggesting. The result in the Third Reich was that by 1936, unemployment had all but disappeared. These similarities were not overlooked. In March of 1935, the former head of the National Recovery Administration, General Hugh S. Johnson, made the Hitler-Coglin comparison in direct terms on national radio. He told Coughlin that while he might not be eligible to become president because he was Canadian, he might well become a, quote, Reichsfuhrer, similar to Hitler. Coughlin was now being directly compared to the leader of the Third Reich. Despite this increasing criticism and pressure, Coughlin's popularity continued to grow. In 1935, he claimed that more than 8 million people had signed on to his 16-point agenda. The following year, Coughlin decided to capitalize on this popularity by creating his own political party, the Union Party, he called it, to run a candidate for president against Roosevelt. The party got off to a difficult start, as many third parties do, but it ended up nominating a North Dakota congressman named William Lemke. The campaign went nowhere, but Lemke did end up getting 892,000 votes nationwide. It was a large number, but nowhere near enough to win the election or even a single state, for that matter. Coughlin was humiliated. He briefly retired from his radio program because he thought the nation was ungrateful and unworthy of his ideas. Yet the radio priest could only remain silent for so long. He returned to the airwaves just a few weeks later, and in January of 1938, founded a group that would make him infamous, the Christian Front. The Christian Front was organized into local chapters, and its task was to fight the spread of communism and what Coughlin called the insidious enemy in the United States. Jews, predictably, were excluded from membership entirely. Christian Front members started arming themselves and practiced shooting at gun ranges and sports clubs, all legal activity, but still troubling. In the ensuing months, Christian Front followers became notorious for beating up Jews on the streets of American cities, and they even proclaimed themselves to be Father Coughlin's brown shirts, a direct reference to Hitler's supporters in the years before he took power. Simultaneously, the tone of Coughlin's broadcast turned even darker. Negative references to Jews became more frequent, as did his open defense of Nazism. The CBS radio network came under heavy fire for hosting Coughlin's broadcasts and eventually dropped him. This forced him to buy time on the local stations himself. Some of these local stations even began distancing themselves from Coughlin when protesters showed up outside their stations. In January of 1940, Coughlin delivered a radio speech in which he directly questioned whether democracy was a worse political system than dictatorship, leading to even more controversy. The worst, however, was still yet to come. Just a week after Coughlin had asked whether dictatorship was the better system, the FBI announced that it had arrested 18 members of a Christian Front chapter in Brooklyn. They were charged with allegedly plotting to blow up bridges, take control of the Federal Reserve gold supply, and overthrow the U.S. government. It was clearly an outlandish scheme for 18 people to overthrow the entire U.S. government, but the American public was shocked. Coughlin himself initially disavowed the, quote, Brooklyn boys, as the plotters became known, but then he chose to embrace them as their trial began. Despite the Justice Department's initial confidence that they would secure a conviction, the trial itself eventually collapsed through lack of evidence. None of the Brooklyn boys were actually convicted, although one did commit suicide in jail, allegedly out of remorse that if he were to be convicted, he would not be able to travel to Europe to fight for Hitler. So the Brooklyn boys got off the hook, but Coughlin himself would not. 
the Catholic Church hierarchy now realized the extent of the danger he posed and ordered him to submit his radio scripts in advance for possible censorship. Coughlin bristled under the new rules, but he had no choice as a Catholic priest but to comply. In February of 1940, Coughlin's bishop directly intervened to prevent him from delivering an anti-Semitic diatribe on the radio. And this marked the true end of his radio career. The Catholic Church hierarchy just simply wouldn't allow him to speak. Coughlin did keep publishing a newspaper called Social Justice that continued to spread his views, but in March 1942, after Pearl Harbor, he foolishly declared in an article in Social Justice that the war had been caused by what he called the race of Jews. The following month, the Postmaster General suspended the distribution of social justice on the grounds that it might harm military morale. Coughlin was now deprived of his last public voice. He was effectively finished and returned to life as a parish priest. The radio priest never faced any legal consequences for his actions, unlike some of Hitler's other American friends. At the same time, though, he never disavowed his views, and shortly before his death in 1979, he gave an interview in which he reiterated that he thought World War II was a mistake and the U.S. never should have become involved. As it turned out, Coughlin had also become a wealthy man through his fame. Because he was not part of a religious order that demanded a vow of poverty, he lived opulently off his wealth for the rest of his life. Father Coughlin was unique among Hitler's American supporters. Unlike many of them, he was a household name and commanded the attention and loyalty of millions of Americans. He would also face almost no consequences for his actions and, as I mentioned, lived opulently off his wealth. Among those who supported the aims of the Nazis in this critical period, Father Coughlin was clearly one of the most effective and one of the most dangerous. You've been listening to guest historian Bradley Hart. I'm your host, Giles Milton. Tune in to the Unknown History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or at quickanddirtytips.com. Thanks for listening. 